I'm sure many of us have heard of the Left Behind series, in which the end times is depicted in a fictional uh, series of books, three of which became movies. There is something about eschatology or the study of end times that seems so fascinating to us. There are countless other books written on the subject as well. For the next two weeks, we are going to see Paul discuss a brief overview of a couple of aspects of the end times. Today's message introduces the kickoff to end times understanding. Today, we are going to discuss the rapture. <clears throat> Here is an eschatological outline that I got from Pastor Kenny Stidham, the former pastor at Good Shepherd in Sky Depot. Note the very first thing seen here, noted by the Green Arrow, is the rapture of the church. Unfortunately, time will not allow us to go through all of the events through the seven-year tribulation and final return of Christ, followed by the millennial reign of Christ today. These will be things that we will gradually cover as we go through Scripture verse by verse and book by book. But as we begin studying this very first event at the start of the end, I want us to really spend some time learning what Paul is truly teaching in this passage. Yes, there are great truths that we can glean from this regarding end times theology. We can learn about the rapture and these vivid and powerful verses. However, the real heart of this section of scripture is to instill hope in the life of grieving believers. Paul's main concern was to comfort this church in Thessalonica that was undergoing persecution. Join me as we see the word of God, what the word of God has for us today. But we do not want to be uninformed. We want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Lord God, we pray that you be with our service today. We pray that you continue to uh, open up our hearts and minds to your word. Pray that if anyone does not know you, that they come to a saving knowledge of you today. We pray that we understand that our hope is found in you and you alone. Please be with us and open up our hearts and minds to your word. Amen. Today we are going to, to discuss three ways that we show that our hope is in Christ. The first is, number one, we who have hope in Christ should mourn differently. We who have hope in Christ should mourn differently. Let's reread verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. I'm sure context clues have shown most here what Paul mentions about those that are asleep. He means that those who have died. This Greek word, kumao, is commonly understood to refer to those who have passed away throughout the New Testament in verses such as Matthew 27, 52, John 11, 11, among many others. But notice that this does not refer to soul sleep. Those who have died do not experience a time of soul sleep or a time in purgatory, as some false teaching asserts. We see Paul teach in 2 Corinthians 5, 8 the following. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Those who have died are absent from the body, and they're home with the Lord. There's not a third option there, either 
present with the body or at home with the Lord. Obviously, we know that those that are not in Christ are absent from the body and in Hades, uh, which is the pre-hell, pre-lake of fire, which is a place of suffering in Luke 16, but we can get into another time as we go through Luke, actually, our next book. Um, and then we see Paul also say in a book that we studied last year, Philippians, Philippians 1.23, he says this, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. As he struggles in prison with the thoughts of whether he is called to continue on earth working for Christ or be with Christ through martyrdom, he states that to depart and be with Christ is far better. It would be far better for him to die and be asleep for many years. Finally, we see another clear verse, uh, probably the nail in the proverbial coffin to the soul sleep movement. And we see this in Luke 23:43. If you remember, as Jesus hangs on the cross crucified, he has two thieves behind them. These thieves both hurl accusations at him at the beginning, but one thief sees that there is something different about Jesus. Eventually, he sees him as the Son of God and recognizes him as the Son of God. As he hears him say things like, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As he sees the way that he suffers, he, he repents and turns to Jesus. And as Jesus hangs on that cross, he says this, and he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Wow. He doesn't say tomorrow or a thousand years from now you will be with me. He says today. Well, getting back to our verse, we see the second half that he says, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Mourning and grieving is entirely biblical. Jesus even showed us an example of mourning when Lazarus died. It is during this account that we, came to the, we come to the shortest passage and most simple passage in all of Scripture. Everybody said, John 11, 35. Jesus wept. I'm afraid that our contemporary church has developed an aversion to brokenness and mourning. It seems that the false teachings of wealth and prosperity have crept into our church and twisted biblical mourning. The Joel Osteens of the world with their painted smiles have made it unacceptable to be real and share the hurt and struggles that are in our lives. My friends, there is nothing holy about not mourning when you lose a loved one. There is nothing holy about not mourning when you receive a terminal cancer diagnosis and yourself or a loved one. There is nothing holy about suppressing your emotions and shutting down your feelings and faking that everything is okay. In our scripture today, Paul is certainly not teaching against mourning here. Mourning is biblical. In fact, he commands elsewhere that we are to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice, Romans 12:15. Yet our mourning looks different than those who are unbelievers. We mourn as those with hope. Atheists have no hope. Once they lose a loved one, there is no promise of seeing them again. And for them, death brings finality and leaves only room for gloom. Life for the unbeliever seems but a meaningless vapor on earth. But not so for the believer. Death is entrance into eternal life. Death on earth is freedom from the burden of sin, freedom from temptation, freedom from aches and pains, freedom from cancer and other ailments, and freedom from depression, pain, and anxiety. When Jesus decides to take us home, when he calls our number, we are going to a wonderful homecoming that we can be excited about. Praise the Lord. Because of this wonderful promise of God, we should mourn differently than the world. Next, we see number two. We who have hope in Christ should be 
motivated differently. Motivated differently. Three verse 14 first. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Before diving into this wonderful eschatological teaching, I think it is important to remember last week's sermon as a preface, preface to this. Paul had just warned about not being idle, busy bodies and encouraged the church to work diligently for the Lord. So as we study this passage, let's remember that although we need to look forward to the coming of Christ, we also need to be working for him through his power in the meantime. The hope and expectation of his coming back should motivate us to work even harder. It is a sure thing that he is coming back. We may not know the day or the hour, but we have this promise from a God who never lies, from the God who never lies, as we see in Hebrews 6.18. Paul gives a pre-understanding in verse 14 that is the basis for everything else he is going to say. He starts with pointing to what? The power of the resurrection. Since Christ died and rose again, he has the power to raise us as well. Praise the Lord. Such a wonderful thought as we move forward. He points to the fact that those who had fallen asleep, the dead in Christ, are not forgotten. They are risen as well. Most scholars think Paul presses in on these deceased believers because the church in Thessalonica was really concerned that their loved ones would be left when Jesus came. There was a strong sentiment, as we saw in last week's sermon, that Christ was coming back very soon. It was imminent. And because of this sentiment, some didn't work as they should, and others spent time worrying about those who had died, thinking that Christ would forget about them and that they would miss out on, on eternity in heaven with Christ. And Paul comforts the church by letting them know that Christ will bring these believers who had passed on through persecution and natural death along with him when he comes. In verse 15, we see this, For this we declare to you, by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who, had, who have fallen asleep. And just in case the church missed those words in verse 14, Paul reiterates that they need not fear that their dead had missed out on their chance to be in heaven with Christ. He has let them know that they are already with Christ in verse 14, and now lets them know that they even get to have their glorified bodies before those who are alive and left on earth the coming of the Lord at the rapture. Those who are alive will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Theologian Gene Green highlights that those who have passed first will take the place of honor in this heavenly procession. Now we come to verse 16, which is where the fireworks come, biblically speaking. Listen to this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This verse gives us some of the most vivid details of the rapture. Paul refers to the rapture as the coming of Christ, as we saw in the last verse. This word coming in Greek is parousia. Scholars oftentimes refer to the rapture as the parousia because of this reference, or the coming. So let's break down what Paul says in this verse. Number one, the Lord descends from heaven with a cry of command. The cry of command. The Lord Jesus is going to descend from heaven because the last time he was on earth, he what? He ascended. He ascended into heaven. And we see this in Luke 24, verses 50 to 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. 
In a similar way, Christ will descend back to rapture his church. And this descent will come with a cry of command, which refers to the power of his coming. It is with all power and authority. Number two, with the voice of an archangel. The only place that we see an archangel by name in the scriptures is in Jude 9, where we see Michael mentioned. However, this does not mean that there aren't other archangels. We don't know. But this archangel will serve as a herald of sorts, announcing the coming of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who comes to gather his people. Number three, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Next, we see that this will not be a secret coming. Many books and movies uh, make it make it almost a secret kind of uh, the people are snatched away. But but the trumpet is going to be blown. It, it will be obvious that something big just happened. They may not know what exactly happened, but it will be obvious that something did big did happen. Uh, the trumpet was blown in many instances in Israel, whether it be for feasts or to signal war, to gather for celebrations, or even to make announcements. Theologian and pastor John MacArthur infers. At this time, the trumpet will blow to signal deliverance and to, to assemble with God's people. And number four, the dead in Christ will rise first. We finally come to the last phrase of this verse. The deceased believers that came with Christ will be given their glorified bodies at this moment. And to, to the comfort of the church in Thessalonica that had worried about their dead in Christ, these deceased believers are not forgotten by any means. In fact, they are instead given the place of honor and are given their glorified bodies first. These glorified bodies are united, these glorified spirits are united with their glorified bodies. We see this in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we, but we know that when he appears, in the rapture here is what we're talking about, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When Christ comes at the rapture, or the coming, or the parousia, we will all be given glorified bodies like he was. Our new bodies will not be marred by the effects of sin. We will no longer have any pain, no more cancer, no more wearing out, no more fatigue. How amazing is this promise? Look at verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. It brings us to number five. Those who are alive will be caught up together with him. Finally, we see that those who are still on earth at the time of the rapture will not experience death. They will be like Enoch who walked with God and then was taken into heaven. See this in Genesis 5.24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. How amazing is that? He, he never dies. He's taken straight to heaven with God. So God's already proven that he could do it, and he does it again with Elisha. So let's look at Elisha, or Elijah here in 2 Kings 2.11. And as they still went on the road, or went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. How amazing will it be to, caught up, be to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air? Note an important distinction here. Some people misunderstand the rapture as the second coming or return of Christ. Note that Christ doesn't come all the way back to earth in the rapture. He meets those who are alive in the air and takes them to heaven. He gives them their glorified bodies. As you can see in this timeline again, as we look, 
there is we're talking about the rapture, which is just before, just prior to the tribulation. The tribulation is a seven-year period of time that precedes the actual return of Christ and the formation of his millennial kingdom on earth. It is during this seven-year tribulation that the Antichrist will come to power and the judgments mentioned in Revelation will come upon the earth. I understand that, that the timeline of end times is difficult to understand. There are some areas that are more clear than others. However, we hold to a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial view of the return of Christ as seen on this timeline, which means that we believe the rapture occurs before the tribulation and before the millennial reign of Christ. And this timeline provides for the most literal interpretation and understanding of all end times passages found throughout the Bible. It's the most congruent that, that keeps them from contradicting one another or being taken as symbolism for the most part. Uh, do we know everything about end times? Absolutely not. But God has gifted us with a good overview of what is to come. And finally, number six, so we will always be with the Lord. So we will always be with the Lord. My friends, listen to this wonderful promise of God. Don't get so lost in this timeline and the details in it that you miss the main point here. We have no power of when Christ raptures his church, but we can rejoice in the very fact that he is certainly coming for his people and caring for those who are his always. Those who are true believers will always be with the Lord. There is no further work that you need to do to prove that you are worthy to get in. Christ paid it all for you. He did all of the work for you. He took your penalty for your sin on that cross. He rose three days later and thereby defeated death and the grave, thereby securing victory for all of those who would confess that he is the Lord, repent of their sins, and follow him. Praise God for his loving mercy and grace. My friends, as you sit here today, do you have that promise today? Can you say that you will always be with the Lord? If he was to come today, would you still be sitting there? Would all of your church family meet the Lord in the air and you still sitting there missing the rapture because you are not truly his? Is he your personal savior and have you acknowledged him as the Lord of your life? He is the Lord over all. And if you have acknowledged that, friend, he still is Lord. He doesn't need you to acknowledge it, but you need to acknowledge it, my friend. It's not enough just to believe the right things in your head. Are you truly a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you true, truly a follower of Jesus Christ? He offers eternal life to those who do acknowledge and submit to his lordship who do accept the free gift of eternal life that he has given us through his sacrificial death on the cross, who repent of their sins and put their faith in him alone. Friend, if you have not done that today, don't waste another moment. Jesus is coming back. He is coming back for his church. He is coming back for us. Be ready. Today is the day of salvation. If you have not given your life to Christ, if you have not submitted to the Lordship of Christ, repented of your sins and turned toward him, Accept his love and mercy that he offers freely. My friends, if you come here just because you want some fire insurance, you've missed the picture. You've missed the boat. If you come here just because you're scared of hell, then you've missed the boat. Yes, we should be scared of the wrath of God. We should be afraid of the lake of fire, of hell. But it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's what he did on that cross that leads us 
to salvation. We don't worship a God of religion. We have a relationship with our Savior. My friends, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I pray that you that you turn to him, that you don't just do religious things to try to earn your way to heaven because that's never going to get you there. The religions of this world all spew lies by saying that you can do enough good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds. Jesus says you can't. The wages of sin is death. All have fallen short of the glory of God. No one is good all throughout Romans. But there is one who is good, and that is Jesus Christ. And he paid the penalty for your sin. I pray that today you don't harden your heart. I pray that you don't run from him, but you run to him. For he is our God. Praise be to Jesus. And finally, we come to our last point. Number three. We who have hope in Christ should be meeting differently. We who have hope in Christ should be meeting differently. Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Paul ends with such a simple and yet profound sentence. Because of all that he has just said, we should encourage one another with these words. In other words, our meetings together as believers should look different than the world. Yes, we should acknowledge the sin of our world. Yes, we should acknowledge the persecution that many of us and our brothers and sisters face throughout our world. Yes, we should continue to preach the gospel and reach out to the lost. And yes, we aren't just to smile and act like everything is okay when it isn't always okay. But we should, because of our hope found in Christ, have a different level of encouragement and joy than the world around us. Our times together as believers should be marked by joy because even though there may be persecution, as the Thessalonian believers knew only too well, we also have hope that Jesus Christ is coming back, my friends. He is coming back for us. Brothers and sisters, is there anything more encouraging than knowing that Christ will never forget about his church? Is there anything more encouraging than knowing that your, your salvation has been secured by Christ and is guaranteed by Christ? There is nothing more guaranteed in this life than salvation through Jesus Christ, if you are truly in Christ. This is why we are commanded to think on things above, as we see in Colossians 3.2. Set your mind minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. As we do life with one another in church, we should be meeting differently. And what are some ways that we should be meeting differently? Well, number one, our conversation should be different. Our conversations should be different. This means that our conversation should be biblical. If you've ever re read the writings of the Puritans, you cannot help but be convicted by their knowledge and memorization of Scripture. Every sentence seems to drip with Bible verses. But sadly, many believers today are borderline illiterate when it comes to the Scriptures. Our conversations should be full of grace and love. They should be full of the word, the truth of God's word. Spend time meditating on and reading the word of God. And I pray that you align your words with the word of God. That you align your words with the word. When you give advice, when you discuss anything, may you have references to the scripture, understanding from the scripture to prove why you say what you say. May it all be biblical. Number two, our preaching should be different. The preaching of the church should be different as well. Unbelievers should not feel comfortable hearing a sermon in church. 
they should either disagree strongly because it is so gospel-centered, or they should be convicted to the point of repentance through the drawing of the Holy Spirit. I pray that the Lord convicts all those preachers who give motivational talks instead of preaching biblical sermons. May our churches preach the truth and love, not settling for the approval of man, but seeking the approval of God. I pray that no one ever sits in a chair at our, a place in our church. I pray that they never sit there not knowing God, and they leave saying good things about our church. I pray that they hear the word of God, that they hear the gospel, and they either come to a saving knowledge of Christ, and they say good things because they are in agreement, but I pray that they never give us lip service, talking about how it was a great speech, it was a great talk, that they learned something new because of what they said. But no, I pray that they are offended because we said, hey, there's only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. And he loves you, and he cares for you, and he died for you. And we know that the cross is an offense to those who are perishing. So if someone is not a believer and comes into our church, I pray that they hear the gospel message each and every Sunday as a part of our sermons, as a part of our music as well, which brings us to our next point. Our music should be different. Our music also should be different. It should, shouldn't sound like a sappy love song on secular radio, which we hear so much even on Christian radio today. It shouldn't drip with the words of secular humanism. I am awesome. I matter, than, matter more than anyone else. The world is all about me. Jesus is my servant. It shouldn't be all about experience and the worship of our feelings. Instead, it should magnify and glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you want to experience God? Then worship him in spirit and in truth. Make your worship about him and not yourself, and then you will truly experience God. There is nothing wrong with wanting to experience God, but the, the, the focus of your worship should not be on yourself. It should be on your Savior. And he will allow you to experience him in a mighty way, but the focus must be on him and not yourself. Number four, our attitude should be different. We should have joy and hope. We should not be doomsday people. Yes, we see the signs of the times. We should not, but, but yes, we see the signs of the times, but we should not deny the evil in our world and the persecution going around, uh, around us. But we should be encouraged because we know that Jesus is coming back. There is victory in Jesus. As the old hymn states, I just read the first verse, or one of the last verse first. I heard about a mansion he has built for me in glory, and I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea, about the angels singing, and the old redemption story, and some sweet day I'll sing up there the song of victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for that victory that we have in Jesus. If anyone here does not have victory in Jesus, they have not put their faith and trust in you, May they not go another moment. May they talk to me today. May they talk to a friend today. May they humble themselves before you today, repent of their sins and turn to you as our Lord and Savior. For us who 
who are in Christ, uh, us who know that we are saved, that know that we would not be still sitting there if the rapture came, that we would go and meet the Lord in the air. May we live from a place of victory, not a place of defeat. May we live with hope, knowing that even though we may lose some battles, victory has been secured and won by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us, and may you be forever blessed and glorified. Amen.